you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you a rundown on today's program, I want to thank a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. You can now order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Clipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. Later in the program, we'll be hearing from Evan Wolfson with an update on marriage equality. We'll also be talking about nuclear power and how that plays into concerns about the climate crisis. We'll be talking with uh, representatives of Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility. We'll also be taking a look at conflicting goals of profit versus sustainability. And I'll also be talking about the potato, my love affair, in fact, with the potato. But first, I am delighted to introduce uh, a longtime acquaintance of mine, Pat Bertroche. He's, uh, he's a retired political pundit. He's a retired um, physician and psychiatrist. He's also a Trump voter. Pat, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on again. Okay, so uh, first of all, right out of the box, are you a lifelong Republican? Uh, yeah, much like I'm a Catholic, cradle to grave Catholic, cradle to grave Republican. Okay, well, you're not too close to the grave yet, I hope. <laughs> not yet. All right. So uh, I've been dodging that COVID, that's for sure. <laughs> In a nutshell, what are your reasons for supporting Donald Trump? I I didn't vote for Trump the second time. Oh, okay, you voted for him in 2016. Yeah, I voted for him in 2016. Okay. This time around... The tweeting and the damage, damage from those tweets, you don't understand until you've been in a foreign country, right? Um, I mean, other, other, there is a, you have to be presidential and you have to, you know, act presidential. And I loved what he had to say, but the other things that went on, like his, his embrace, he, you know, he's embracing QAnon and the rest of it. Those are things that stop and make you go, hmm. Was it okay to ask who you voted for in 2020? <laughs> I don't want to say out loud. Okay. But it was a throwaway vote. It was a throwaway vote. I, okay. couldn't, I couldn't bring myself for another four years of this. I, I couldn't take it anymore. Right. You know, because uh, I travel so much. And I will tell you, my brother, my brother Joe loves France. And I'm going to tell you, I'm never going back to France. The other reason I didn't vote for Trump, you have a man of brilliance named General uh, Mattis. And whenever General Mattis goes, I can't support this, you have to stop and look at, well, why not? Right. Actually, I'm kind of glad he's out. I feel relieved. Really? Because I didn't want to have to look at the paper again. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, he certainly yeah. said a lot of crazy stuff that got a lot of attention. And, and a lot of people I've talked with who did vote for him were able to look beyond that. But it sounds like for you, that definitely was part of the part of breaking the deal. You've got to be interested in what's happening at the state and federal level on health care. Anything in particular that you're tracking these days on health care? Yeah. Uh, in particular, there's a bill uh, in Iowa um, 
the HF294, uh, we were given notice that uh, Walmart was going to reduce the payments for telemedicine uh, for mental health by 25%. That would have fed rural Iowa, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, I know personally that there's a, a, a family that's about two hours away from Des Moines who could finally get their children in to see a therapist because of this, because of relaxation of the, of the telemedicine rules. And of course, when you act, when you increase access to, to care, particularly among the rural and the elderly, what really happens is it costs insurance companies more. So this bill passed almost unanimously in the house and it's being held up in the Senate. And frankly, if you just go to vote smart and look up where, where Walmart donates, but this is one of these key pieces of legislation that if it does pass, will grant access to the entirety of the state for mental health services. I would, that's a big deal. I would think a bill that made it easier to use uh, telemedicine would be very, very popular with rural communities and, again, very popular with the Republican lawmakers who represent those rural communities, right? Oh, yeah, uh, and it is. Hospitals, clinics, doctors, all of this, the people that actually deliver the health care hmm. are all for this bill. Um, I was talking to a... Uh, uh, rural clinic one of the things i do is i help uh help rural help clinics remain profitable and i was talking to this rural clinic probably a week ago what is today tuesday so it'll be last wednesday and i will tell you that the, the the person who's in charge said straight out we're not going to survive if they even reduce by by 10 percent, which is what the, what walmart is negotiating for is to have the verbiage changed so that they only have to pay five for five percent or ten percent less instead of twenty five percent less, and they're just simply not going to make it. Yeah. These rural clinics are just going to fold. It seems like on this issue, you probably are more aligned with the majority of Democrats uh, at the state house. Well, you know what? Funny enough, uh, I'm aligned with just about every member of Republican caucus in the house. And I think I'm aligned with several uh, senators. And occasionally, you know, Ed, I agree with Democrats. <laughs> so let me, let me. I think that's what gets me in trouble. Let, let me, let me segue that into a question about Democrats. Are there Democrats that you have voted for in the recent past? No. <laughs> okay, easy answer. Let me ask you this. Were there any Democrats running for president in 2020 you could have voted for if they'd won the primary instead of Joe Biden? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. Um, Why is that? I, I would well, um, well, she's not very popular in Hawaii. But I will tell you, in Hawaii, in order to get elected, you have to be a Democrat. You have to tout the, the left wing loom line. But when you actually talk to her, right, it, she really has a lot of common sense, you know, answers, right? There's some things I don't agree with, obviously. Um, but really, her, I think her, her experience as a veteran made her look at this as much more practically than from you know, if like somebody like Biden, who's been in the game for years, or somebody like uh, Clinton, right? 
So I think that is somebody that if, if I had a gun held to my head and somebody said you have to vote for a Democrat, which one? That would be the one I would have voted for. All right. Well, you know, and so, there's a lot of dissatisfaction across the political spectrum with both major political parties. Do you feel it's time for a new political party or maybe two new political parties, parties to rise in America? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always for that. I like the Libertarian Party. The problem with the Libertarians, they don't ever get. Um, I would actually probably be more likely to be a Green Party member uh, if the Greens were like they are in Europe, which is strictly environmental. You really? and I agree on a lot of environmental yeah. stuff. So really, a, 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 green, uh, uh, a, a, a sympathetic, a person sympathetic to the Green Party who once voted for Trump, that's, that's a fascinating combination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, when, you, when it comes down to you have two choices, and one of them's Hillary Clinton, you know, that, that doesn't make that choice very hard. Right. You know? Big concern for me, and big concern for scientists who study it, 90, 97% of uh, the scientific... Uh, oh, don't, don't start quoting that one. You, that, is, that number has been debunked over and over. Okay, so, then why, why is it still on NASA's website? We don't agree on that one. Okay, well, so Pat. Ahead, I'm sorry to okay, hell, it's it's on NASA's website. It's pri- on NASA's website. It says, "quote Multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97 percent or more of actively publishing climate scientists agree that climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities." So, what part of that don't you agree with? Well, I don't agree with the methodology of the study. That's that's my issue. If you, if you actually put that into the crucible of science, it's like I could do a study. It's like the studies on marijuana, you know, the, the studies that came out originally that got, the, that got everybody out and going, they basically took a bunch of homeless people, gave them weed for a week, and say, how do you feel? That's basically what boils down to. Well, they've done the same thing with this, right? You know, if you limit the choices of answers, that was the one problem with the study that said 97%. What, 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 right? answers, what answers are and being then, limited? And then second, it, that, that's extremely likely that humans have an impact on climate. Well, yeah, anybody with any sense is going to say, well, yeah, we have to have some kind of impact. But what they're trying to get at is you're trying to draw a conclusion from a study that is limited in its breadth and its scope and say, well, hold on, we, we have these people, they say humans have an impact on climate, and that turns into humans have are the only ones that have an impact on climate. So even though that they may have said that, the study itself is a terrible study. So what about the, what about, what about the um, information just in that 2020 was a record year for wildfires in the U.S. West, and that those closest to the situation there, firefighters and others are saying that, yeah, this is uh, a big part of why we're having these wildfires is the uh, changing climate. Well, my answer to that is, because uh, I've had this conversation with my nephews over and over. The problem is the data set. Yeah, this fire, these wildfires are, are terrible, right? There's a lot of drought out there. Well, is that due to climate change? which is a very generic thing, or is it related to human activity, or is it human, actively, human activity-driven climate change that's doing this? One of the things that, that, they, that we know is they built the Hoover Dam at the peak of a cycle 
where water was very plentiful, and now it's on a down cycle, and we know that cycle is about every 70, 75 years. I forget the exact number. So what about, just switching but, switching locations a second, your pet, what about the uh, the storm season last year in the Atlantic? Uh, 2020 set a record for um, tropical storms and hurricanes in the Atlantic. Yeah, and that's great. It was a record year. However, two years before that, or maybe three years, they predicted the worst um, the worst uh, hurricane season ever, and there wasn't a single hurricane for 18 months. You know, this is, this is part of the problem, is... It's like these Wall Street betters. You know, they always say the market's going to crash, market's going to crash, market's going to crash. And then 10 years later, it crashes. It doesn't mean that you're right. It just meant you kept saying the same thing or waiting for a cycle to show up. You know, that's what we know. I mean, for crying out loud, we didn't even know about El Nino till the 70s. So how much climate, how much impact of that? We're just now starting to figure out exactly the impact it had. And you're trying to tell me that simply by measuring the surface temperatures and everything else for these um, measuring tools that we've only had that have been very accurate for the last 30 years are going to be enough for us to predict what's going to happen in the next year. I mean, the data set simply isn't adequate to make those kind of predictions. So what uh, what about the fact that the... Uh 10 of the warmest years on record of all, all 10 of the warmest years on record have been since 2005. Again, we go back to your data set simply isn't adequate enough to go, oh, yeah. We're not talking about, you know, major changes in temperature. We're talking about minute parts of degrees of changes in temperature. No, no we're, we're talking about right? changes that are huge in terms of the impact on, on ecosystems. I mean, when you've got well, and changes well, that aren't uniform. Well, like, let me throw this data out. Let me throw this data out, I guess. What we know since we started measuring the temperature of the sun and I can't remember, the 1880s, 1890s, whenever we started to have that ability. And what we know is up until 2005, from the, in that period of time, the sun's uh, energy output has increased by about 1%. Do you think that has an impact on climate change? Uh, yes, but I, I, again, I defer to, I, like when I, when I, when I want, when I want an opinion about, um, uh, a bill on telemedicine, I'm going to turn to a physician who's studying that for my, for guidance. When I want to understand what's causing the, uh, rise in temperatures, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to a climate scientist. And when 97 out of a hundred say, yeah, this is a human induced, maybe the sun has a little bit to do with it. Maybe there are other factors involved, but the big culprit here is fossil fuel consumption and carbon emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions. I'm going to listen to those people. Well, and I would agree. That would be one source that I would look at. That's true. That would not be the only source. Pat, I, I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, folks have been talking with Pat Petrosh. He's a retired uh, physician and psychiatrist uh, living in the Des Moines metro. Uh, voted for Trump in 2016. Went some other direction in 2020. He won't tell me who. That's okay. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation, Pat. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. All right, folks. When we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be uh, talking about marriage equality with Evan Wilson in a minute on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you folks, and uh, a quick shout out to our local nonprofit partners. Thanks to Bold Iowa, building rural urban coalitions to address climate change, uh, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at Birds, Bees, Urban Farm. Org. I am excited to welcome to the program Evan Wolfson, who I got to know back in the early 2000s when uh, I was one of the one of the one of the politicians in Iowa, not afraid to stick up for the right to marry for our LGBT people, and um, we've come a long way since then. Evan, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Yeah, and I think we got connected when you contacted me about. Your book, Why Marriage Matters, which at the time was um, a little controversial, uh, talking about letting gay people marry. <laughs> and we've sure come a long way. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, almost mind-boggling to think about where we're at today. Uh, yes, we, we, of course, have made enormous progress. When you and I were speaking, there was only one place in the country where same-sex couples could marry. That was Massachusetts. And there were only a handful, maybe maybe at that point, only two or three places in the world. And now, of course, we've won the freedom to marry in 30 countries around the world, so that more than 1.1 billion people live in a freedom to marry country. And we have, of course, won the freedom to marry throughout the United States. And same-sex couples can marry, and their marriages are respected equally in all parts of our country. So it's a huge amount of progress, but we still have a long way to go. And then, of course, in Iowa in, in 2009, I believe it was, when, we, uh, when, we, when the Supreme Court here uh, ruled in favor of marriage equality, unanimously, I might point out, uh, we, have, we saw pushback after that. There was a significant pushback by forces on the um, right that, uh, that organized, that mobilized voters to kick out three of the judges, the Supreme Court judges that had voted in favor of it. But nowadays... It just seems like we're done with that. We're beyond it. Uh, there's no, I don't see any viable, serious effort on the right or anywhere else on the political spectrum in the U.S. to take away the right to marry. Do you? Uh, well, I think there's still a, you know, a fringe opposition that is the dwindling rump of what was there 
uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. But absolutely, the general picture is what you're saying. People have seen with their own eyes, families helped and no one hurt, and people have moved on. Most people think it's, it's a good thing, and those who, are, who don't like it have moved on. They yeah. found other people and other causes to attack. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> that's but right. The, but Always someone picture, to attack. Yeah, the general picture is this, this now this mountain of evidence and expertise and experience in the United States and around the world showing that all the bad things that people claim would happen turn out not to be true, right. and lots of good things have happened. There's been an ocean of joy. Couples are respected. Children are, are affirmed in their families. And uh, marriage has not dwindled or been destroyed, and gays have not used up the marriage license. <laughs> and that was one point I made in the speech I gave in 1996, which is, I think, how we originally got connected, was that, mm. you know, um, you know, uh, heterosexual couples don't have to rush out and claim all the marriage licenses because uh, they're concerned that gays and lesbians are going to scoop them up. It's not like there's a limited supply. So, and I, I, I mean, ironically, so incredibly, that was one of the arguments that some of the opponents were making. You know, we can't. Yeah. As if it's a limited you know, supply. But. Well, I think what's also striking is that it's not only been good for gay people, but people have seen it as a good for society generally. I think right. it reaffirmed people's belief that government could actually do the right thing, that we could get things done, that our country could rise to fairness and do better. And that has been an, a model for other movements and other causes to embrace the power of, of achieving change, the power of helping our neighbors rise to fairness. And of course, it not only brought greater affirmation for gay people in the freedom to marry, but it has helped erode prejudice and discrimination uh, against gay people and now against trans people across the board. I mean, we still have a huge amount of work to do. There still, of course, is discrimination. There still, of course, are legal problems and challenges, and uh, people are still vulnerable. But we're in a much, much stronger and better place, and many, many more people have come to embrace the, the causes of fairness and inclusion than when we were talking, you know, just 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And by the way, April 1st, uh, is the 20th anniversary of the first country in the world ending marriage discrimination. So we now are at the point where we've had the freedom to marry somewhere in the world for now 20 years. Mm. And again, there's now this mountain of experience, this track record showing that nothing bad happens. Yeah, yeah and the, uh, the the campaign to... Uh to um, end discrimination in this country, uh, you, you, you led a, a significant component of that effort uh, through the organization you established, the Freedom to Marry. And I know that, uh, I know that you can trace back uh, decades before that, uh, back into what, 1960s and 70s, when people were first agitating for equality. And, um, and as, as we move closer and closer to that day, uh, the, the campaign developed more sophistication and more... Um, more uh, more focus and uh, and you were really instrumental in helping to make that happen yeah well thank you I mean old as I am I wasn't the first person to think of the idea of gay people getting married I, <laughs> I stood on the shoulders of other pioneers and brave people who stepped up and there was as you said a wave of cases across the country in the early 70s all of which were rubber stamped away denied by the courts even the Supreme Court got it wrong and our challenge mm. when I came into the picture about 10 or so years later was to figure out how to turn that no into a yes. And what I brought to it was trying to, and then you know, being successful in building a campaign 
to sustain the conversation, not just to have a wave of cases or bold and brave actions, but to really mount a serious, sustained, affirmative effort to change hearts and minds and to bring in the legal and political work necessary uh, within that climate of changed opinion to get the job done. And that's that's what has now become a model for other causes and other movements here in the U.S. and around the, around the world. As we look to take the elements of success and, and learn from the mistakes we made and the missed opportunities on how to persuade people and how to achieve change. Can you give us an example of how the lessons learned during the marriage equality fight are being applied today to other, other struggles and how they're affecting the, uh, the movement of it? Sure. Well, around the world, people may have seen that, you know, the United States was not the last country to achieve the freedom to marry. We won, I, I now have even lost track, nine or 10 countries since. And many of those are countries I've worked with activists on the ground to take those lessons and look at the kind of campaign we built in the U.S. and achieve the kind of success, for example, we saw just a couple of days ago in Japan, where a court ruled in favor of the freedom to marry. And uh, the campaign that's been built there on the model of freedom to marry here in the U.S. is working to drive public opinion and to turn that court decision into an engagement with the government to get the legislation passed in the national diet, the national parliament. But closer to home, uh, another example is, for example, in the immigration work, where there's obviously been tremendous toxicity and hostility brought against immigrants by Trump and his ilk, uh, drum-beating attacks on people. But we've also seen the American people respond to that with a tremendous growth in empathy and understanding and activism to respect immigrants and to try to end this kind of political dysfunction around immigration. So if you think, for example, the dreamers, the, you know, the young uh, immigrants who came to this country, were brought to this country, of course, by their parents and have grown up in America, studying in America, working in America, and now are being told they have to leave because there's no pathway forward. The dreamer movement took very consciously and explicitly lessons from the Freedom to Marry campaign that one of the things they need to do is put a human face on the, on the question and tell their stories and personalize it and reach out to other people and help people to connect their values of fairness and inclusion and respect with the lives and stories of real people. And as a result, support for the dreamers has massively soared and has helped achieve a change in the discussion around immigration in this country. What we still need to do in the immigration work is combine that attitudinal change, that storytelling, that empathy, that connection, that persuasion with political and legal work and tackle the political dysfunction in this country to get the job done in the courts and in the legislatures. And that's the challenge of the next several months, I believe. Evan, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Good to talk with you. Folks, we've been talking with Evan Wolfson. He's the founder of Freedom to Marry, which was, again, instrumental in the, uh, in the uh, effort to to uh, end discrimination of marriage back in the early part of the 2000s and ongoingly. He now advises and assists other justice-related movements across the world. He's an author of uh, one, one book is uh, Why Marriage Matters, and uh, it was uh, published in 2004, and I think it's still a great read and very relevant. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Folks, we'll be back in a few minutes here with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Markets Rewards Program is now free for all Gateway shoppers. You can sign up in person 
or via Gateway's online shopping site to earn points by shopping in person and online. Redeem those points for discounts at the time of your purchase. The program is valid for everything except catering or cafe purchases. And Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Back to the Fallon Forum. This is again Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to the uh, local businesses and nonprofits that helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, as I like to say, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by giving Kim Holding a call at 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. All right, welcome back to the program, and I'm uh, delighted to welcome to the program Angela DePrairie and Ben King. They are members of the Iowa Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and they are co-authors of a publication called Making Everyday Earth Day. Ben is from England, recently moved here. Angela from Winterset, I believe. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having us. So oftentimes during my conversations about climate change, uh, nuclear power comes up as an option. And most of my guests on that subject feel that that needs to be part of the energy mix that we, as we move beyond fossil fuels. I'm pretty sure that you guys and Physicians for Social Responsibility have a different opinion about that. So let's start with addressing some of... Um, some of the claims that are made that, uh, that in support of nuclear power and why those claims don't match up with your science. Right. Well, I'll start by saying that the position of Physicians for Social Responsibility is that nuclear energy is not a solution to the looming climate crisis. And some of the myths out there are that nuclear energy is sustainable, clean, safe, and reliable, but in reality, nuclear power is unsustainable, it's too dirty and even deadly, it's too costly, too slow, too unstable, and unreliable. So how is it, how is it not sustainable? Well, the nuclear fuel is not renewable. Nuclear fission currently requires uranium, which is a finite and comparatively rare resource. Okay, and some people are saying that well, be, uh, the I, I know you've also said that it's not safe. Um, that mm -hmm. that uh, that component is probably pretty familiar to people. Uh, I mean, all, all you have to do is say the words Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and people get it. But what I'm hearing is that there's a new generation of nuclear reactors that might be safe. What do you know about that? Hi, this is Ben. Um, well. It's quite timely, actually, because recently there was a report by the Union of Concerned Scientists that looked at the new advanced 
uh, reactor designs that are being developed. Um, and they actually found that um, these non-light water nuclear reactors are actually no better and in some ways significantly worse. Um, they would require huge investment in infrastructure and research and development. Um, it's also an increased threat of accidents and, and terrorist-related uh, problems because obviously if, if you're building lots of new sites um you're, you're spreading those problems around and they still haven't got rid of the waste problem either so even with the new reactors there's still an issue of where to dispose the waste exactly yeah okay so that that's that 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 is that isn't always stated when i hear people speak out in support of the um, of the new technology uh and, and again you as you mentioned ben it's costly as well Extremely costly. Yeah, extremely costly. The fact that we haven't really been building much nuclear uh, power plants in the last 20, 30 years means that the supply chains have, have really degraded. Um, so in terms of, of investment, you're talking about way more than just building power plants. You're talking about the whole supply chain um, side of things that, that is, has just been degraded. So who um who is in, who's behind uh, continued support for building more nuclear power plants? I imagine some of the big utility companies. Yeah, the whole nuclear industry is um, the technology that's used to create nuclear weapons is um, then transferred to our creation of nuclear energy, and so there's a vested interest in continuing to use it. Tell me more about that, the, the, the connection between nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. That, again, has been something that people have been concerned about for a long time. Sure. Um, from the very beginning, the nuclear energy industry was, was deeply tied to the nuclear weapons programs, as you can imagine. Um, the main reason why they went with uranium for energy in the first place was because it was um, what was needed for the nuclear weapons. Um, they could have gone with something like thorium, which would have been safer. Um, but because of nuclear weapons, we, we, we developed these path dependencies, which made us rely, reliant on uranium for nuclear energy. And that hasn't changed. Aren't some of the new reactors uh, based on thorium and not uranium? Um, some of the new designs are, yes, but uh, if you take India, for example, they've had plans for foreign reactors for the last 60 years, and it was a three-stage process, and they still haven't got past stage one. Um, so when it comes to, to new technologies like thorium, you've still got lots of hurdles to overcome. Okay, hurdles that are bigger than the hurdles that people identify with wind and solar. Basically, that uh, battery storage is a problem with those types of renewable energy systems, which I understand we're, 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 doing, we're taking some pretty big leaps forward technologically to be able to address that. But the problem with thorium is that there's still unanswered questions in terms of how the technology works. Is that it? Yeah. Uh, no, it comes down to cost and time. Um, we don't have time to develop and roll out a whole new uh, generation of thorium reactors. We have to get away from the carbon economy within a decade, really. Um, and the only way we can do that is to use what's available now. Okay. I know, Angela, you'd mentioned other myths relevant to the uh, perception of nuclear energy. Was, it, was there something else you had in mind there besides the ones we've discussed? Well, yeah, the... 
the fact that people think that it's clean energy, the nuclear industry promotes that idea, but radioactive waste uh, remains dangerous for human health and the environment for thousands of years, and there is no permanent storage solution for nuclear waste. Um, actually, right now, there's more, more than 500 tons of spent nuclear fuel in Palo, Iowa, which will remain there for decades. Well, I mean, that's part of the problem is when you, when you look at a nuclear power plant, you see steam coming out of the uh, cooling towers. When you look at a, a gas-fired gas fired, um, coal plant, sorry, gas-fired power plant, you don't see carbon being emitted. Um, <laughs> you don't see a lot of smoke. Uh, you know, it's, it's so it gives the impression that either natural gas or, in this case, nuclear power are, quote, cleaner than a coal-fired power plant, for example, or a oil-powered rig of some kind. And so, yeah, I see where people get that impression, but maybe part of the challenge is to get them to move beyond what they identify as clean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing clean about radioactive waste. So you mentioned um, Palo. Uh, for folks outside of Iowa, a small town uh, just west of Cedar Rapids, uh, uh, Palo has for a long time been home to the Dwayne Arnold nuclear power plant. That is now decommissioned, I believe, or at least closed. And right. um, I, I think there is some, some interest in, I mean, some folks have interest in recommissioning it, but there's also an alternative plan, I believe. Okay, yeah, I haven't heard any plans to recommission it. It's a very old plant. It was it was actually damaged in the derecho. That's why it shut down. Oh, yeah, that derecho <laughs> took out right. a lot of took out a lot of things. So, anyway, it's been shut down for about a year now. And are there plans to put something in its place? Right. The owner of the plant uh, is Next Era Energy Resources, and last week they proposed a solar project that will be on 3,500 acres surrounding the nuclear power plant, and it will have the capacity to generate 690 megawatts, which is more than what was produced by the nuclear power station. And the company's goal is to have the solar farm operational by 2023. Okay. And of course, some people say that there are also concerns about solar energy in terms of where the components come from, what happens in the panels are no longer usable, uh, where do they go? Uh, yeah, I know they're not radioactive. <laughs> they're, they're not going to be sticking around for um, thousands and thousands of years contaminating the soil, but there are still issues. Are those being addressed? Um, yeah, the great thing about solar energy is the, the development and progress of the technology is so great. Um, there's a lot more uh, alternative methods one can use. Um, the capacity for the technology to develop far exceeds that of nuclear power. Um, so the problems related to solar are a lot more overcomable, if that's a word. Uh, I'm not sure it is, but uh, it's a great word to end on. I, I've got to run to a break, uh, and we hope that uh, that these obstacles continue to be overcomeable. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Ben and uh, Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ed. You're welcome, Ed. Thanks for having us on. Folks, we've been talking with Ben King and Angela DePrairie. They're members of Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility. When we come back after a short break here, we're going to be talking with Mark Clipsham about uh, the conflict between ag policy, healthcare policy, economic development policy, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online 
and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to the local businesses that make this program possible. Thanks to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, featuring both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Check them out, folks. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Clipsham to the program. Um, Mark is... Uh, Mark is inflicted with the uh, problem of thinking deep thoughts. I want to ask Mark, what do you think are the key structural conflicts within our system, not so much of governance, but e economic, farming, healthcare, all these things that, that are really backbones of our way of living, and yet they seem to be at odds. Fair enough? Indeed, and uh, if I could point a finger at quote-unquote one culprit it would be the growth economy paradigm it uh, is sort of the antithesis of stability it requires us to produce more and more every year ergo consume every year more and more and I think it's unsustainable on the one hand on the other hand it's unhealthy and it's also it's also the paradigm for uh, cities. Cities feel they have to keep growing, annexing new land, um, building out. Uh, institutions like universities. I mean, we live not too far from Drake University, which gets bigger every couple of years. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how far they're going to expand their footprint. And it, it's true of organizations as well. I mean, it seems like the growth economy model is just a part of everything we do. It, 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 to me, it's the unquestioned God. Uh, it's the golden calf. And don't try questioning it. Uh, what do you mean there's another way? Yeah, what about stability? Why is stability uh, such a, well, they call it stagnation in the economy. It's one of those uh, derisive words that it paints a bad picture. It's like, no, there's nothing wrong with stability. S stability, it's <laughs> as opposed to chaos, you know? Yeah. Well, do you think, do you think is, is Biden on the verge of beginning to address the underlying reality that the growth economy is not sustainable or i mean that is that is that too much to hope for yeah he, probably he's, uh, <laughs> he's, got he's got to straddle the fence uh we are so addicted to this concept of the growth economy it, it's almost like there's an alternative is unthinkable and yet the fallout from it is so first off environmentally destructive i mean that that's the source of climate change you know like how do you 
there is no such thing as a sustainable growth economy, let alone even stable. Growth itself is volatile. It's chaotic. Stability is not. Uh, to me, that's the epitome of conservatism. And yet, there's a basic conflict there in the paradigm. You so know? What, do you, what, do you, what do I say to the, uh, the city planners? who would, When I was working on land use policy as a legislator, city planners would always say to me, well, if you don't grow, you die. What do you say to that? I say build a city that the development supports itself. Right now, you got a leapfrog. You have to have new growth going on to support the existing growth because it's so sprawling and infrastructure heavy, it can't support itself. I've said to the city near me, I won't mention a name, please <laughs> do a survey of the different areas in town and see the relationship of the tax revenue to the infrastructure costs, and this is crazy stuff, and then build like the areas that bring in more revenue than they cost to maintain. I know, that's crazy. Yeah, crazy. No, no, that's that's very true. And in fact, when I was a legislator, I, I worked with, a, I had an intern working with me and we did a, a study of growth in three Des Moines metro communities, Altoona, Indianola, and Waukee. And the analysis was of residential, commercial, industrial, and agriculturally zoned land. And in every single case, residential development cost more than it brought in in new revenue. Now, in fairness, industrial, commercial, and ag land all paid more in taxes than they consumed in services. But, you know, it's, you know all, the, all these new developments are about building new subdivisions, right? I mean, it's, that's not all of it. There's new malls, of course, as well. <laughs> Where would we be without new malls, right? Uh, yeah, I went to one about 25 years ago. It was so much fun. I guess I never went Wait, back. That, that, was your, that was your last time at a mall was 25 years ago? Okay, I went to visit the farmer's market that's located in one. That was about it. They remind me of airports. It's like a marshmallow pumped up with energy. <laughs> you pull the plug and it dies. There you go. There's your growth. You know, it's all plugged into energy. And what's the the supply chain, the energy, whatever? There's nothing there. It's just a, a Hulk. So, by by, an, by extending that metaphor, our growth economy is a giant marshmallow, and at some point, the plug is going to get pulled and it's going to collapse. Oh, absolutely. What does that look like? Describe the plug and the collapse for me. Let's do it the other way. Okay. Okay. So my daughter was in study abroad. We're going to call that. She had a Euro rail pass. She went to class a couple times. Um, she got a heck of an education. She was based in Valencia. When she got finished, we went over there. And that city was laid out, the, the core city, horses, carriages, that kind of thing. There was no surface parking lots. Stuff was underground. Everything was five stories tall. Everybody walked. And by the way, everybody was fit and healthy. So it, so, uh, it sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. Oh, yeah, I know. It was, oh, the nightlife was incredible. The food was great. There was no, by the way, there was no sales tax. Uh, and, and it was very affordable. And yet it was like paradise. So you pull the plug on that. It's like, huh, you know what? It's actually going to be okay. Uh, Things are tight. Well, not, not tight. No, my goodness. They were so people scaled. I looked at a picture of a new subdivision in another city I'm not going to mention near here. <laughs> and, and, oh, there, there had to have been 80 or 90 feet between the face of houses on one side and house on the other with mowed lawns and asphalt in between. Yeah, Mark, uh, uh, entertaining point about pulling the plug and the marshmallow collapsing. I'm, I'm reminded for some reason of the huge 
um, creature on the Ghostbusters. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the um, you know what what is it, what does it look like? Specifically, that conflict we 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 see between various policies. Um, I know you've mentioned once to me um, uh, the, the 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 you had an analogy involving pate. Yeah, yeah. It, in France, they make pate foie Right. It's not a good thing for the geese. Well, they they outlawed it because it was so horrible to do to animals. I see them doing it to people. Growth economy means growing more every year, producing more. Well, someone has to eat all that. So through marketing, advertising, you know, making it a culturally wonderful thing, you know, bratwurst, bacon fest, pork festival, whatever it is, tailgating, you know, it's like eat more, eat more, eat more. People are unhealthy. So we're kind of we're kind of a uh, foie gras geese uh, on a voluntary basis. And and yet the the diseased liver that produced is the most valuable part of the goose and the analogy in our culture is that's the the benefits the profits reaped off of the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare industry which are huge nobody wants to afford it and yet that's the logical end product of overconsumption well and we see we see that in terms of obesity levels of diabetes heart failure i mean these are all predictable symptoms to uh, overconsumption. And by the way, they kill far more than COVID ever did, and yet it's institutionalized. Once again, very profitable, and yet the farmers producing this don't seem to be making money. That's what I keep hearing. So that makes me wonder what the whole purpose of our agricultural paradigm is in Iowa. Well, isn't it isn't it partly or largely to help continue to feed that growth model, to feed that uh, capacity to continually expand both production and consumption and well, profits? Part of, part of that was into China, but, you know, we perceived we were being treated unfairly, so you get the trade war, and you end up with like a snake in its tail, and it, the end result again is the farm model doesn't work as well as it might be as, say, a smaller production of food for people rather than a huge monocrop production, chemically based, chemically supported for animals. How do you how do you get people to see that reality? It's almost like it's a since we're talking about movie metaphors and whatnot, a, a bit like the Matrix. Um, we don't see this uh, structure that's in place that's mm-hmm. creating mm-hmm. these innate conflicts and innate problems that. Uh, when you when you when you see them, you, you you it's hard not to turn away, and to bring it in another direction. Oh, and by the way, we we're talking about the development model, the antithesis of health. Also, this is crazy stuff here, but eat good, healthy foods and get exercise. <laughs> Seems to be a conspiracy against that, with these conflicting paradigms of ag, healthcare, growth economy. And uh, environment. Well, and the the other the other item I would add to that list, Mark, is sleep. We are probably the most uh, sleep deprived uh, civilization in history, uh, and um, I think people know that sleep is important. Uh, we certainly have elements of the healthcare industry telling us it's important, but then we have um, kind of a glorification of that person who can work, work, work without having to sleep more than a few hours a night. You know? Oh, oh, and and they don't have time for their family or themselves there's so many things I, I would really like to do as like no I'm gonna 
make some more money. I'm going to do my taxes. I'm going to avoid these annoying phone calls that come in every 20 minutes. You know, it's like, it reminds me of the story about Harrison Bergeron. You know, it's got this little ding, dinging bells going off in your head. So you can't concentrate. Mm. You know, it's just, I, I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'm tired. Yes. I'm tired and I'm tired of it. Yeah. We need something different. This does not work. It, it is not sustainable. It is simply not sustainable. And what are you going to do about it? I stopped answering the phone last week, Ed. <laughs> I will listen to my message at the end of the day, and now when the phone rings, I just smile. That's my first time. I grab my own garden. Very hard to do in the middle of monocrop with overspray and everything, but yeah, and I exercise every day. Yeah. So I don't get sick. I'm a vegan. What can you say? <laughs> well, I'm with you on all those things except the vegan part. <laughs> sure, sure. Hey, a little bit of it, this, that, and the other is fine. It's overconsumption it's balanced the stability that's what we need yeah. it's the chaos of the growth of the ever need to change and consume more and make more money every year for what purpose i'm pretty sure that's for the one percent it's not for me well mark uh you remind me a little bit of alan watts one of my uh favorite uh, modern philosophers and um i bet he would be agreeing with you if he was around uh, tuning into this program. <laughs> okay. um, Mark, uh, thank you uh, again so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Mark Klipsham, uh, delving into some of the uh, realities behind uh, the kind of the, the, the models of, uh, of our society that we just accept blindly sometimes. Anyway, Mark, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Back in a minute, folks, with more conversation, I'm going to tell you about my love affair with the potato. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. We get it down with you here, folks, as we broadcast from America's heartland and the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Yeah, that's uh, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa. All right, so hey, the potato, I love it. Ha. Before I tell you about how deeply I love the potato and why, I want to thank our local business uh, partner, our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, Gateway's rewards program, this is pretty cool. It's now free for all Gateway shoppers. You just sign up in person or through Gateway's online site and you can earn points by shopping either in person or online. And then you redeem those points for discounts during your at the time of your purchase. Uh, the program is valid for everything except catering or cafe purchases. Check it out, folks, at ga uh, gatewaymarket.com. More details right there. But, you know, so I want to talk about potatoes, but no, I'm not going to talk about the potato head family. 
other than, okay, I, I do want to point out this, that um, shares of Hasbro, <laughs> the company that makes Potato Head, rose after the company gave its popular potato-shaped toy, Mr. Potato Head, a brand makeover by renaming the spud simply, quote, Potato Head, and dropping the Mr. title. Uh, shares rose 1.34% to 92 bucks and 13 cents at the uh, last time this, when this article was written, just recently checking the, the, uh, the uh, well, how trading was going. So uh, Hasbro <laughs> also said that the new figurines will be made in more eco-friendly packaging using plant-based plastic. The change will appear in boxes this year, 2021. Well, okay, so that's, um, that's great to know. Uh, that uh, businesses are, you know, are, are trying to respond to the fact that people caring, are caring about each other and about the planet. But let's not underestimate the truth that it is about good business practice. They, they, they know that, <laughs> that doing these things is going to get them a boost. So let's hope that it's not just um, lip service. Let's hope that their switch to plant-based plastic reflects a true emerging environmental ethic. We'll see. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to rush out and buy a plastic potato head, but what Kathy and I are about to rush out and buy are a whole lot of potatoes because we ran out this year, and an Irish man and an Irish woman running out of potatoes is not a pleasant thing. Kathy and I agree we need a lot of potatoes. One thing we don't really agree on, but at least I got my way on this, is when the best time to plant potatoes is. I, I say it's always Good Friday. Good Friday is... And two days before Easter. Easter is a lunar calendar. And so the idea behind planting potatoes on Good Friday is you plant them on the waning phase of the moon. Uh, because it is believed by some that um, when you plant on the waning phase of the moon, uh, vegetables that are focused on root production will go deep and produce strong roots. Uh, you know, conversely, when you want to grow a crop like lettuce, broccoli, you know, Brussels sprouts, something where the product is above the ground, where the leaf and plant structure, growth structure is really important. Then you plant on the waxing component of the moon. Now, I did check, and um, the uh, this is from the New York Times in a story from 1991. The world of hard science has not tried to study this stuff. And Cynthia Rosenweig, uh, she's an agronomist with NASA, says, quote, it's mythology. There has to be a physical reason why the moon's different phases would affect soil properties, soil temperature, moisture content, precipitation, which are the actual physical factors that make seeds germinate. And that isn't documentable. Well, okay, I, I can accept that what she said is true, but I point out the fact that she said the world of hard science hasn't tried to study this stuff. Okay, so I don't know whether planting on Good Friday makes sense. All I know is my Irish ancestors and relatives still have done that forever. It is the practice in Iowa. And I have planted potatoes every Good Friday since I want to say 86, except for one year when I was walking across the country. And every year except one, they did really well. And the weather was okay that day. The soil was dry enough. There was no frost damage to spuds that came up on a Good Friday that might be earlier in the season. So I, you know, I don't know whether there's a, quote, science behind planting on Good Friday. But I will tell you this. It always works, and it works really well. And so you should be planting you know, planting potatoes uh, this Friday, April 2nd. And uh, there's lots of ideas on how to do that. I've seen some people plant them in buckets with some success. 
Some people plant them in like wire cages. Some use tires. I can't stand the idea of using tires. Just, um, and to me, just the tradition of planting them in the ground works just fine. Now, I will say, I learned how to plant them in Ireland, but it's different in Iowa because we have hotter weather, we have windier weather, and so planting them in big flat ridges, as we did in Ireland, doesn't work as well in the upper Midwest. I've learned, and it took me a few years to figure it out, <laughs> not a fast learner, but uh, the, what we do is dig a trench, just uh, oh, maybe four or five inches deep, and we will plant a row instead of like a, like a ridge. It'll be just a single row of potatoes. Again, we'll, we'll start with, uh, we, we have some saved, and we'll cut those and the ones we buy. We'll cut them in quarters um, from the top down to the bottom. And you'll just have to see if you can figure out what the top of the potato is. Basically, it's where the concentration of eyes lands. And you want to cut the, cut the potato so that it's got at least two or three eyes on each quarter. And if the potato is small enough, just cut it in half. It's okay. No one will know. And then, um, you know, get those in the ground uh, in a row with the eyes up every six inches apart or so, maybe eight inches. Uh, we tend to go six, maybe even a little bit less. We like density. And, uh, and then, you know, cover them with uh, four inches of soil and sit back and let nature do the rest. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book, um, Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim, and I want to read you a little bit about it. Uh, well, I, I just say, we, we lived on, um, my, uh, my first wife, Kristen, and I lived in Ireland, and uh, this was back in 1984, and uh, we, um, we grew everything. <laughs> we grew cattle, chickens, lots of crops, and a huge patch of potatoes. And, um, you know, I, when, I, when I moved to Iowa, I, my, I, had a, I had back trouble, so I didn't grow, I didn't farm a lot, but I started small, but every year I grew some potatoes. And, you know, we would have crop failures, and only one year did we, did I, did we have a potato crop failure, and it bugged me. And, I, and I, um, I'll read you this section from my book. When the potato crop failed, instead of an oh well attitude, it shook me. Why, among the 25 to 30 different vegetables and fruits that we grew, did a disastrous potato harvest elicit such a reaction? I've thought about it a lot and concluded that the great hunger of the mid-1800s was to blame. During our year farming in Ireland, there was no blight, no risk of starvation, no shortage of food, Yet during the growing season, every farmer in the area sprayed the family's potato crop six times for blight. The traumatic imprint of a famine 140 years earlier remains branded into the Irish psyche. Despite the passage of time, for me, six generations removed from the famine and two from Ireland itself, I'm still wired to fear starvation if my potato crop fails. There's a broader lesson in this truth, one that America's, quote, dominant race needs to understand. I have never heard anyone tell an Irish-American kid to get over the potato famine. Yet how often have I heard it said that blacks need to get over slavery or that Native Americans need to get over attempted genocide? Privileged white Americans either don't understand or choose to ignore the fact that what happened in the past matters. If your great-great-grandfather was chained in a ship crossing the Atlantic, then humiliated and beaten for the rest of his life, while legally defined as three-fifths human, do you really think his descendants won't bear those scars? 
If your great-great-grandmother was raped by soldiers as she watched her village burn, then forced to march hundreds of miles through blazing heat or freezing cold to see her children die or be sent to reservation schools for indoctrination, is it that hard to understand that it takes many generations to recover from the horror of colonization? There is one get over it that makes sense. White America needs to get over the denial of its privilege, even those of us whose ancestors immigrated from the impoverished backwaters of Europe to escape famine, war, and genocide. We whose ancestors were maligned by earlier white settlers when they arrived, nonetheless have a distinct advantage over non-Europeans, and that is skin color. While America has made great strides against the scourge of racism, we still have a long way to go. Again, that's from my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Yay, potatoes, plant some. And yay to the folks who took the time to be a part of this program today. Thanks to Pat, uh, Pat Petroche, Evan Wolfson, Angela DePrairie, Ben King, and Mark Clipsham. Thanks to our local sponsors, Gateway Market, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Noche Jazz and Cabaret, and Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks to uh, Brother Trucker, for providing the bumper music for this program, and thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. Thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. And again, thanks to you, the audience, for tuning in. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Till next week. <laughs>